This is KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits, and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Welcome to the Ecology Hour in this special series, The Fish Files. Tonight, I will be sharing two interviews that I previously recorded. The first includes a portion of a conversation that I had with two members of the Pinoleville Pomo Nation about their work to restore the Russian River tributary Ackerman Creek. During the second half of the hour, I was fortunate to catch my colleague, Brian Johnson, the California Director of Trout Unlimited. Brian's been working to restore a free-flowing Klamath River for the last 15 years, and will give us an update on some recent news related to that effort. But first, I'd like to give an update on this year's Salmon Run. And I'll begin by stating that the Salmon Run is officially on. Um, On the eel, fish and wildlife fisheries biologists are maintaining an underwater sonar camera station that films salmon as they pass on the lower Eel River. The camera was installed on November 12th, and by the 16th, they had counted eight jacks and two adults, That expanded would be more of an estimate like 24 jacks and six adults. And the river continues to rise, and I imagine there was probably another pulse last week, and the fish kept running. Although I should say all of this data is preliminary and subject to further analysis. And on the Mendocino coast, we started getting rain over the last week, and stream flow is still a little too low to allow salmon to migrate upstream in any significant way. It takes about six inches of rainfall for the season to get coho salmon migrating upstream. So it's likely we need a little more time before we'll be able to observe any fish through passing through our monitoring stations on the coast. And with that, I will launch into my first interview with Angela James, the vice chairperson for the last 25 years for the Pinoleville Pomo Nation, and Julian Maldonado, the Shippo Tribal Historical Preservation Officer for the Pinoleville Pomo Nation, and member of the Hoplin Band of Tribal Indians. Angela and Julian were really generous with their time, and this interview only captures one component of the work that the tribe is doing in our community, including fostering educational programs in Ukiah schools, to working with the UC on building efficient homes out of sustainable and fire-safe materials. But tonight's conversation will be focused on their work on the Russian River tributary, Ackerman Creek. Okay, so... um... The Pinoleville tribe has access and um, used the Ackerman Creek since the late 1800s. Um, and some of the resources that the tribe uses out of that Ackerman Creek um, are uh, traditional native plants um, used for basketry, um, we also use um, the tradi- gather traditional medicine out of the creek. Um, and when I was growing up, my grandfather, he had nine acres of vineyard that he um, owned. And 
he used uh, the water from the Ackerman Creek to actually um, water his, his vineyard. And so going back to myself as a young, um, a young child, I, I can remember the creek, uh, Ackerman Creek being full probably until, oh man, it might have been late summer back then. Because I remember we used to my where my grandpa um, my grandpa's property is he managed um, a lot of that creek there and what I mean managed by is he he um, dug yeah dredged um, the creek so he he was able to do his uh, water his vegetation and so that became a really nice swimming hole for us. <laughs> And so we used to do, spend a lot of time in the summer down there swimming, and, and it was pretty deep. It was enough to go, you know, at least to, this was probably at least four and a half feet or so, um, or maybe deeper. And I remember also he did a lot of fishing in that creek, um, and it was a steelhead. And... Um, and so I, I'm just really attached to that creek. And we um, take our youth into the creek for some of the um, gathering of our traditional plants and medicine. And so it's just a learning um, a learning place now for, for our youth. And sometimes we have our elders with us too, so. The steelhead. So um, as the more like the fish ladder, they have a metal fish ladder at the uh, State Street um, Bridge, and it beats up the fish, you know, cuts them all up, gives them, you know, just different things like that. that you know, there's there's a lot of stuff. It, uh, yeah, like she, Angela said, the creek used to be big. I've only been around here the last 20 years, so as I've seen it being in the creek, there's, there's a lot of our um, traditional, you know, stuff that we gather that that just being wiped away because of of the water not being let out like it's supposed to the dams um it doesn't run like it was and at one time the creek was really wide here um because as we dig in certain areas is it's riverbed and so that tells us the creek went that far up where we we're digging at so i mean like almost close to the road to the Penelope Drive, they said the creek used to be that close. So it was real wide and there was a lot of water, but until everything got dammed up, it made um, things change. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I, I think, you know, that is probably, fish barriers are probably one of the, the biggest, you know, impacts that have um, limited how many salmon and steelhead there are locally because we basically, you know, we cut off most of their habitat by, by putting these impediments in the streams. And for a long time, fish ladders were relied on as a way to, um, to move fish up the rivers. But what we've learned over time is that they're really not very effective. 
um, in part because it's confusing and hard for the fish to get up and above them. And then just as you mentioned, it can, it can kind of um, beat them up, um, and they already have a pretty arduous journey to get um, from the ocean back up to their native spawning gravel. And the other thing that we've witnessed, and this is, um, we've talked about this on the show, but is that narrowing of the creek channel that as um, over time, as, you know, areas were settled and infrastructure was built, the creeks kind of got pushed around. But the other thing that happened too is that kind of hardened the landscape and then that allows for more you know, rainfall runoff to enter those streams um, more quickly. And then that really, you know, results in a lot of scour. So our creeks get more narrow and they cut down and they get deeper and they disconnect from their floodplains. Um, And we're finding that that is, you know, kind of critical for rearing fish to have access to those floodplains because that's where almost all the food is. so your observations are right on par with what we're seeing all over the county and, quite frankly, all over the North Coast. And I just wanted to mention, too, when I, I remember when I was little and my grandpa would fish, he, he did a fishing, um, like a gigging-type fishing. But I remember um, my brother went with us one time, and he was just able to, like, grab the fish. There were so many fish. I remember, and he was just able to grab one, like with his bare hands, and and move it out of the onto the rocks, and he caught a fish like that. That's how, and it was they were really big fish too, and um, provided food for us. Yeah, I love no. those stories. I really do. I hope one day that we can see returns like that. Mm-hmm. Me too. <laughs> yeah, as as we fished here the last twenty years, uh, I um, I'm almost I'm five eleven, and like maybe the first couple years, there are fishes all the way to my waist. I could, we were pulling out of the creek, and then they just got smaller, and and we wouldn't catch as much as as we you know like we would, but uh, we'd be out there fishing, but we only you know like one time you only get one chance and that's it you know then the next person would go just like you know we're having a good time but we're fishing too and it was uh right it was cool because you know uh like that was the old way you go out and you fish for your family and you know and and you you know you have a good time with whoever you're with whoever's out there so um, the fish have diminished since since I've been here, 20, got here 20 years ago. So, I mean, really diminished. I think we see one or two now a year the last five years. Hmm. Do you have any, you know, assumptions why you think that is? Um, probably because we don't hit the creek as much as we used to, but but they're out there. We see a lot of little ones, and that's just, which is good. Um, like little minnows, you know, that they're just bonded in there, but, um, but not no big ones, you know, they'll come through and the water hasn't been as high as it used to be too. It's been real, I mean, you can walk, you could actually walk across it now, um, before you wouldn't be able to walk across it, it'd be a little deep, you know, three, four feet, you know, maybe some spots and some spots to be like one, two. But it'd be running pretty good, you know, where it could knock you down. 
and right. it's not like not no more. And yeah, and this coming. summer is a, a good example of that, where stream flow is critically low right now. Um, and in some places, we're starting to see the streams just go below the surface of the gravels. And it's so tough for those, you know, juvenile fish that are just trying to hang in there through the summer and eat as much food as they can and get bigger, because when we have those situations where the stream dries up, some of them get stranded, and then that's just the end for them. Yeah. And Ackerman, it dries up in some spots. Quick, early in the... It doesn't um, stay as long as it used to. The water dries up faster. Yeah. I would say by what? Yeah. Yeah, and we have a good rainy season, so it really dries up. Because I remember during the big time, they used to go down to the swimming hole in July, middle of July, and it'd be at least 10 feet deep, and they'd be jumping off this rock. All the kids, you know, because it'd be hot up there on the, at the big time ground. And um, at least some days it'd be 100 plus, and those kids would be out that uh, swimming hole by the big time grounds, and they'd be, but not anymore. It's real little, you know, probably what, three, four feet. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could just lay your body in it now. I remember them jumping off the rock, the little guys. Yeah, yeah, and it's been a hot summer, so you need those good those good uh, swim holes to go take a yeah. dip and seek some refuge from the heat. Um, and so you had mentioned that um, the tribe has been involved in some restoration work on Ackerman, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, they um, our our EPA department has been working. Um, on several different projects over the years, and um, removing of removing of the arendo um, that's in the creek, um, um, and also we also had a levy put in. Is that what they're called? Mm -hmm. Levy yeah. back in I don't remember what year it was, but it was like a line of old cars they put in our in our bank where the bank is of the river. And so the tribe actually um, removed those, um, and I don't remember the years, but it's been a while since we removed those and started uh, planting native plants um, in place of, uh, you know, the plants that are not native to our land, like the, I call it bamboo, but they call it arundo. Yeah. <laughs> but um so that kind of restoration we have been doing, and then we've, We've been doing um, water sampling, the Ackerman Creek. I believe we have three spots in the creek that we're we are monitoring, and um, um, it actually helps us to also with because a lot of the land here is um, septic on septic systems, the household, and so it helps us identify or manage. You know, if there is one that's faulty or not working or leaking. Um, that actually has helped us in a couple cases to identify. Well, I want to commend you on your work with Arundo. I have um, been involved in various projects over time targeting that plant, and it does. It looks like bamboo. I've heard it called giant reed, too. Yeah. And, you know, talking about, you know, we were talking about how there's less and less water. Well, 
that is a plant that has an incredible capacity to take up water. I mean, it looks like a giant straw and it drinks like a giant straw. Um, And it is very hard to eradicate. Um, So what kinds of things are you guys doing to try and keep that population at bay? Diesel? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, uh, you we, know, try to, we try to root it out, and it's hard, you know, because where it's uh, located, we try to root it out and and um, just try to dry it out, and that's basically. But you, I mean, it's like um, it's like a, what do you call it? Uh, blackberry bushes. You know, you you could cut it and it'll grow somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And, but. It's it's horrible, you know. But um, we and plus, what else we did in the creek is um, we made fish beds when we did the restoration. We did um, we took a lot of these uh, redwood trees and we made them as like kind of not dams, but like areas, like square areas. We set them and then we put rock over them. Then we put tree lined it with trees, and um, so it's like more of a softer fish bed for the fish. We did like six of them out there in Ackerman Creek. And uh, yeah, we put like sand because you know they like the sandy, rocky kind of like, but real fine. So we have what you call river silt. River silt is a uh, half, uh, half mud, you know, half mud, half sand, you know, but it's mixed. And if it gets wet, it gets real hard. And so we took some of our river silt in certain areas and, and covered that. But it washes away. But I mean, after a while, it'll it'll make a it'll build its own levee. Mm-hmm. And so is the idea that that makes for a nice little spawning spot for yeah. adult salmon? So they don't yeah. have to go so far down. So they don't have to go so far down and, and get beat up anymore because they have to deal with the fish side before they even get up to where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. We use uh, the, the work that I do. Uh, most of the restoration that we do is focused on putting um, – redwood trees and firs back into the channel because they're probably one of the best tools to create good spawning habitat and good rearing habitat because they, you know, can scour those pools that those juvenile fish need to hold in the summer. And, you know, if big enough, they make those good swim holes too. Um, you should think about also- red willow. Red willow is really good. It, it's, it's one of like red willow and gray willow. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, we've been starting to, you know, where appropriate, we've been starting to use more willow in those wood structures. And we call them kind of living jams. And it's really cool because just like you said, like the wood's really good at sorting those gravels and silts and fines. And you need a little bit of all of that to make for spawning habitat. Um, but then the willows do such a good job of slowing down water and allowing for, well, it's great habitat for the fish to, you know, get away from predators, um, provides a good source of food. And then it really slows down that water. Yeah. So they have a place where they can kind of hang tight when the winter storms occur and stream flows increase. Because just imagine some of our baskets that we, the Pomo people make, like my grandma, Susie Billy, uh, you know, she, she made baskets where they can hold water. And That's so, amazing. like, and it was made out of willow. Yeah. I have heard so that, that and I'm always so impressed. Um, well, and, and, you know, 
this is true of most Native Americans and of the Pomo Nation, and particularly the Pinoleville tribe, but, you know, there's a long history of the tribe getting shuffled around and moved from their, the lands that they historically occupied um, as European settlers came in and, and claimed that land. Um, and I don't know how much you want to get into that history, but is there any um, anything you want to share related to the ways that the that the tribe um, that history kind of forced the tribe to have to change um, its traditions and practices for hunting and foraging and just living overall? Yeah, um, I would just say. Uh, so prior to European settlement, um, you know, the native people were stewards of the land. They never took more than what they needed. And they always prepared, like, let's say they were gathering basket material. They always prepared for future gathering. You know, they, the way they even cut the material so it grows back properly. Um, they just took care of all of that stuff. And so, once the settlers came and our people, like um, I know you mentioned earlier, you know, read a little bit about the Bloody Run. Um, our people here were gathered up and rounded up like cattle from what my grandfather tells me the story. Um, they're rounded up as like cattle and driven up to um, where Round Valley is located. And he always said it was kind of like a what you would, what you know, a concentration camp would be. And then some of the, um, you know, they were mistreated, they were beat, they were starved, they were um, raped and murdered. And um, even on the march there, there were, uh, you know, elders who couldn't make that march, and they were just shot right on that trail and thrown in the Eel River. And there were there were also babies that, um, you know, couldn't make it, and they were their heads were smashed against the rocks and thrown into that same river. And that's why they, they call it bloody run because that river ran red with their blood. And so um, from living that life of, you know, in nature and just abundance of resources to that, you know, that's nowadays we talk about historical trauma and that's what a lot of our people suffer from because of that that history. And so when we were, our captains of Pinoleville here, um, you know, they escaped those conditions there at Round Valley and, and then headed back to what, what they knew. And, um, you know, they, they purchased, they were able to purchase some land and that's, um, I guess where you, where the Ukiah truck stop restaurant is, um, that was the original, purchase and it went from like where the truck stop is today back to the west side hillside and um the townspeople of ukiah they didn't they were scared they were afraid of the ceremonial um practices that the native uh Pinoleville, what we know as Pinoleville today people were um doing they were afraid of um the wailing and crying that took place at uh, burials and funerals. And so they approached the, the captains and asked to, um, if they wanted to exchange land and um, it would be like a straight across exchange. But in the end, it ended up being, they wanted more uh, money. 
and so they they did come up with that that money and they they um that's how we became uh out here off the Horse springs road and what we call the panoliville trust property and um but from that point on, you know, we adapted to where we were. We adapted to the environment. We still carried on the traditions of, you know, not taking more than what we needed and taking care of what we what we would need for the next year. Um, and you know, that's that's not only with Ackerman Creek and the 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 resources we get out of the creek and the water, but also on the land. You know, like the oak trees, the acorns, the, um, I remember my grandpa was really, um, had a green thumb, definitely. He had his own vineyard and grape vineyard and walnut orchard. And he, um, I was just sharing with my kids and my husband, I was showing him like on nine acres, I would say at least, I don't know, maybe, maybe two, three maybe two acres of it was complete garden and, and he managed it himself. And so that just tells what was passed down from generation to generation as they took care of the land and they took care of the plants and all the resources that they needed, they took care of it. And so that's why we try to um, follow in those same footsteps, you know, and as best we can um, to take care of uh, our traditional food or traditional resources and um and then pass that on to the next generation too. Did I yeah. go off No, no, that was fascinating. I have to say when I hear the stories of how, you know, people were treated when the Europeans came, it's like two things kind of happen one I'm just absolutely horrified and then there's just so much deep deep shame um because I'm you know a white person of European descent um and it is just there's so much to atone I don't even know if it's possible to ever atone for the atrocities that European settlers um plagued you know the people who first lived here um what about, I mean, is there anything that, um, you know, we haven't talked about that you'd like to share or, um, yeah. We also volunteer every year for the Russian River cleanup, but we, of course, we do the Ackerman Creek. And we have um, some of our tribal citizens come out and help clean that. And then Throughout the year, too, we have to uh, keep an eye on the creek, too, because there's a lot of um, homeless encampments that try to, because there's no water in it now, they are down in the creek. So we try to manage that, too. Um, And then on all of our properties, just trying to take care of the land the best we can. Yeah, no small feet. (laughs) Never-ending job. Yeah. Um, It's not a nine-to-five. That's me. Yeah. Right, right. And and it's, you know, rain or shine. Yeah. Um, When I feel like it does get tough managing all this, I always think of our captains, our elders, um, my ancestors, and my grandpa. I'm like, man, he made it look easy. (laughs) 
They made it look easy. So I'm like, it can't be that hard. Any day that I have that I think hard can't even touch their hardest day, you know, so. And that concludes my interview with Angela and Julian with the Pinoleville Pomo Nation. And this is a reminder that you're listening to Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio, and this is the Ecology Hour. On Monday, I was able to speak with Brian Johnson, the California Director of Trout Unlimited, about dam removal on the Klamath River, one of California's largest watersheds. Removing the Klamath dams will open more than 300 miles of spawning and rearing habitat for salmon and steelhead. It will be the first time the Klamath will flow freely in over a century. And for many, this will start the healing process for the watershed and for the communities that depend on it. Last week, the governors of California and Oregon announced a new deal with dam owner Pacificor and the Karuk and Yurok tribes. This deal revives plans for the largest river restoration in U.S. history, and upon federal approval will transfer ownership of Pacificor's four dams to a new entity, with the goal of removing the dams beginning as early as 2023. Brian is a water rights attorney and water policy expert, and he also serves as the vice president of the board for the Klamath River Renewal Corporation, or the KRRC. So thanks for joining me, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So there was some recent activity um, related to the dam removal on the Klamath River. And um, as I understand it, this is really going to clear the way for the final steps of dam removal. And activity was focused on Pacificor, which is an electric power company in the western U.S., and Warren Buffett, who's the owner of Pacificor and a billionaire investor. And they've agreed to the full terms of the Klamath Hydroelectric Settlement Agreement. And so this agreement really sets the terms for the removal of all four dams on the Klamath River. And um, I guess I'll just start by asking you, why is this such a historical event? Yes, thank you. Um, Well, it is. It's it's the uh, Warren Buffett, um, who owns Berkshire Hathaway Energy, which owns Pacific Corp and Pacific Power, and the two governors, Governor Newsom and and Governor Brown, um, announcing um, um, new steps under the dam removal agreement that really puts them um, all in, all, all three of those organizations on dam removal and and takes away the off ramps and and really commits uh, all three of those institutions to doing whatever it takes to to get the dams out and and so with that announcement we have every reason to believe that um, the project will be on track and will be able to to stay on track through the completion of it oh yeah that's always a big question people have you know how long will a process like this take so what is the the projected track and timeline for this project Sure. So the well, we'll remember that the original agreement uh, we were hoping um, when we signed this thing and and had the first round of it back around 2010 that we would be uh, in the process of removing dams now. And and there have been a couple of setbacks along the way, 
uh, not in terms of the engineering or even the overall budget, but in terms of the, the regulatory and permitting schedule. And so what, what happened, uh, you know, most recently is, is that, that FERC, the federal energy regulators, had some questions that caused us to go back and have this, re, this nego negotiation. And I can elaborate if you, if you like, but the, but the gist of it is that um, that cost us another um, six months of negotiation, which means that the regulatory process was set back. And so what, what happened this week is we announced this um, um, reinforcement of the agreement. It's not a new agreement, but a reinforcement of the agreement. And also the same day, didn't get quite as much attention uh, refiled and updated uh, the license surrender application, which has now all of the um, engineering and um, several of the key permits, uh, like the permits from the two states, and is at what we call 90% design uh, for for removal and has a very robust budget. And, and then in um, January, we will be updating the the filings for the federal regulators about how the uh, transfer of the license will operate, um, keeping Pacific Corp on up until the moment that we know for sure that we're removing dam removing the dams, and and then substituting in the two states and um, an organization called the Klamath um, River Renewal Corporation, which will be carrying out the dam removal project, and at that point, all, all that's left is for FERC to agree to those that 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 type of transfer and to issue the final permits for the the program um, approving the engineering designs and we have a couple of ancillary uh, things that will go with that and be parallel tracked and not cost extra time uh, like um, biological opinion for from the um, the fish regulators for how those permits will work and uh, PUC's Public Utility Commission's approving the transfer of the assets, um, which we wouldn't expect to be um, problematic. And, and then the uh, project will be in the river for two years, um, starting in 2022 and completing in 2023. Wow, that's a lot. So it seems like there's a lot of moving parts both with regards to just the physical, you know, challenges of removing these, these massive um, infrastructure pieces, but then there's also all of the, the policy and the background logistics and the regulations that are tied to it. And, and I was just thinking, like, we should really probably just take a step back and talk a little bit about just how complex this effort to, for dam removal has been historically. I mean, this has been going on for decades. It's been this super long concerted effort that's had a lot of success, but then pitfalls. It's involved more than 40 partner organizations, includes um, the Karuk, Yurok, and Klamath tribes, two states, commercial fishing groups, and conservation groups like ours. Um, you know, can, can you talk a little bit, and I know that it's a long, there's a long background <laughs> that is associated with this, with this overall story, but can you talk a little bit about, like, the inception of this effort to, to remove dams in the, in, you know, the third largest watershed in California? Sure. 
and, and it, it really um, any any version of this story um, has to start with the tribes. Um, the, these dams were were built um, over in, in steps over the first part of the 20th century um, over their objection and without their consultation and um, immediately started to have a have a ne- negative effect on uh, fish runs and water quality. And, and by the time um, the end of the century came around, uh, they were facing a, um, a need to get a new license. And this is something that all hydropower dams have to do every 30 to 50 years. And the, the tribes um, joined with uh, a number of conservation organizations, including Trout Unlimited and others, uh, to press for uh, dam removal, um, um, or at a minimum to um, ensure that the, the dams could be operated for water quality and fish passage. And it turns out that there's really no way to do that other than dam removal. Um, and it also turns out that the, the dams are uh, not used for, for water supply or flood control. So it's not like some dams that, that have um, a, a bunch of different reasons for existing. And the, the operator themselves, Pacific Corp, um, um, doesn't doesn't need these, and and it didn't take that long once it became clear that fish passage would have to happen and water quality measures would have to to occur before they um, were able to talk to us and the tribes and the two states about removing the dams. Um, but they but they also wanted to you know they're a private company and they wanted to protect their um, ability to. Um, make money and deal with the uh, utility regulators and not have a shock, you know, to, to ratepayers. And so we, we basically agreed um, back in 2010 and in a way that's reinforced this week to split the costs. And so the, and it's important, I think that people forget how, how uh, much of this has already happened, but uh, the deal calls for the first $200 million to be, Paid for by Pacific Corp ratepayers in Oregon and California, and and that was collected through a surcharge on bills, and that money already exists. It's it's in the bank. It's been used for the engineering, um, and it's there. And and then the up to another 250 million dollars from the state of California, uh, which recognized the the strong benefit to fisheries and to the tribes in California downriver. Um, and the program has been moving forward since then. Um, from and, and from an engineering and cost standpoint, it's it's complicated. It's hard. It's the biggest river restoration project uh, that the country has seen. But it's also for the companies who who do this sort of thing for a living. The general contractor is a company called Kiwit. Um, it's just an engineering project, and they they you can tell when you talk to them that they, they got this. They they know how to do big projects like this. Um, and they can manage it, and and so the but the but the challenge that we had, um, which we learned over time with the federal energy regulators, was um, on the one hand, yes, you think we think you can handle this project, um, and and the deal called for a new organization, the KRRC, the Klamath River Renewal Corporation, to manage the dam removal. Um, and that will probably work, and it seems like you do have enough money, but what happens if you don't? Um, what if it costs $450 million plus 
one um, or another $10 million. And, and ironically, the, the, the discussion about that um, was making the project take longer and, and cost more because they were um, asking us a series of, of questions, had an outside engineering review, and, and that delay as they were asking us that question was the very thing that was causing the, the budget to go up and, and make it more likely that we would end up at 450 plus one. And so the, the, the main thing that happened last week in, in going all in with the three organizations is that each of the three, um, Berkshire Hathaway and California and Oregon, agreed to augment the contingency fund by $15 million and also to pay in equal thirds um, whatever it takes beyond that. And, and ironically, I think that that commitment will be the thing that moves the schedule forward and probably means that we don't need the money. Um, I, I think we'll, you know, odds are very good at this point that we bring it in for the original 450 but not being able to answer that question was the thing that was holding us up. Wow. So it sounds like, you know, these groups are kind of preparing for the, for the worst in the event that costs go up, um, but doing it in a way, you know, that's really prudent so that if there was an issue in the midst of the project, you aren't dealing with it then. You've already addressed how to surmount certain challenges if they present themselves. That's right. Would you, I can explain, uh, you know, now or, or later, if you like, how we how we're confident about the project in terms of engineering and costs, um, or if that's um, you know too much in the in the weeds, we can we can leave that. Sure, it might be helpful to talk a little bit more about the Klamath River Renewal Corporation. Um, you know, this is in July. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commissioner FERC. Um, did uh, approve the partial transfer ownership of the four dams um, from Pacificor to the KARC. And so can you talk a little bit about who this entity is that's going to be in charge of dam removal, like um, what groups make up the, KAR, the KRRC, excuse me, and um, how, how this corporation is going to take on this endeavor? Sure. So. Going back, you know, again to the original contours of the deal, um, the the utility Pacific Corp and and the states wanted to be able to share responsibility and have a vehicle for for doing that, and they also wanted um, that organization to be able to contain costs and and manage risk um, and keep it on schedule. And so the the parties to the settlement created a corporation called the Klamath River Renewal Corporation, which is a nonprofit and uh, will, will manage dam removal and will uh, take ownership of the lands and facilities for a short period of time while the corporation is, is managing the contractors and managing dam removal. And then we'll turn over the land that used to be owned by Pacific Corp where the facilities are and, and some other land nearby uh, to the two states afterward. And, and the, this is a model that had been used on a, um, a project on the East Coast um, in the Penobscot River um, with a, not exactly the same kind of configuration, but also you know, creating a corporation to do this. And, and so we, we believed it could work. And uh, the, the, the settlement has uh, the parties to 
the agreement um, uh, appointing board members to the KRRC um, um, in order to um, govern the project. And um, a little more than, than half of the board members are appointed by the two states and the other board members are appointed by the, the, the Yurok and the Karuk tribes um, jointly by the conservation organizations and by the um, commercial um, uh, fishing uh, interests. And, and that, that constitutes the board. And, 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 and I'm on the board and I'm, I'm the vice president and um, we are the holders of the contracts with Kiwit um, for, for dam removal and a company called Res for the post-project reconstruction. And, and as I said, we're, we're at a point now where it's basically all designed but for the final permits. And we will have um, um, the world's uh, most comprehensive insurance program for managing the project at that point and guaranteed maximum price contracts with those organizations um, once we have the final permits so that we'll know that we can keep it, keep it on track and on budget. Oh, that's so interesting. You actually just answered two other questions that I had. Which, <laughs> you know, where did where, where did this kind of idea of creating a nonprofit corporation to to lead this effort come from? But you just mentioned that it it was um, modeled after an effort on the East Coast. And then I was also curious why the states were so important as co-licensees. But I can see now that you know if they're going to be the long-term landowners. Um, obviously, they're both charged with managing these resources, that um, they would have a really significant role. Is there any other reason why having both the states involved is so significant? I think there are a couple things. I, from, from the state's point of view, they, they want to be involved. The, 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 the governors are committed to this. Um, Governor Newsom was telling a story at the announcement um, uh, about how when he, when he won um, the election, it was clear that he was going to be the next governor. He got a congratulations call from Governor Kate Brown in Oregon and, um, you know, expected it to be the usual, uh, you know, hey, uh, you know, congratulations call. And 15 seconds in, she started pressing him on Klamath. You know, where are you on Klamath? You know, we to make sure we get this project done. Um, and so, so from their point of view, being engaged that way is um, a way for them to protect their interests and A, make sure that it gets done and B, make sure that the um, you know, the lands are in the right shape and, um, and particularly in the state of California's um, uh, perspective through the bond funds to help ensure that it stays on budget. And then um, Pacific Corp has a similar but um, almost, almost mirror image interest. They want to be able to say to their regulators and their shareholders what their cost is going to be. Um, but then have that be very clean and, and, and be done with it. Um, in the original version of this, we, um, the states wouldn't have been involved and Pacific Corp would have switched off and the dams would have transferred to KRC and, um, and, and the project would have gone forward. And, um, but then it became clear that the FERC had this question of, well, what happens if it goes a dollar beyond? And, 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 and so, and there was a related question of if the dams transfer to KRC and then we don't approve the surrender, you've got this corporation that was only set up for dam removal um, owning dams. And so um, 
we, we thought we always had answers to that. The, the, the project wouldn't have failed for going $5 million over. We would have, you know, the parties would have found the money. But you can see, especially in retrospect, um, from the, the regulator's point of view, they, they wanted that answer just to be clear and, and show up on paper. And so, um, so the utility will stay with us um, all the way through the design and, and stay for operating purposes. And then only at the moment that uh, dam removal is approved and we're moving forward, will KRC come on and manage the property, but then with the backstop of the states, um, one of the folks who works for the Karuk tribe describes it a little bit like, um, you know, somebody coming in for a loan and having the, the parents co-sign. Um, and, and, and so it's just that extra assurance. And, and again, I think it's that, that thing that seems like an additional commitment from the states will probably actually be the thing that turns out to, um, to ensure that we don't need the extra money in the first place. And so it's, it's probably a cheaper and more effective way to do it than, than what we had been on. And, and I think part of the reason why all of the folks involved like this version of the uh, of the agreement even better than what we had before. Yeah, I listened to that um, press release where Governor Newsom spoke, and I have to add a random fact that he mentioned he had a pet river otter as a child. Did you catch? Did you catch that? <laughs> <laughs> that was interesting. I had no idea. Um, it was great to see the the energy and the passion, and you could tell that they they really cared about it. That they weren't just showing up and and looking at some talking points for something that they didn't know anything about. Um, yeah, yeah, you could. I mean, yeah. it's like it's it it did. There was a air of um, celebration in everyone's um, demeanor because I you could tell like after decades of trying to figure this out, you finally had like put that last piece of the puzzle in and you could see clearly what the, what the image was that you've been working on for so long. Um, especially, I mean, I was really moved by some of the words that were provided by the Karuk and Yurok tribal leaders. Um, as you mentioned earlier, like tribal, tribal leadership has just been so critical to the success of this project. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, the roles of the tribes and how they were kind of integral to ensuring the success and, um, of this project. I'm glad you asked the question, and um, and, and it's, it's a good place to start and 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 end. The um, everything about this project begins and and, and ends with the, the tribes on the river. Um, the they were the ones who. Um, uh, always had the most at stake, and and from the beginning, um, were able to make it clear that um, that failure wasn't an option, and that one way or another, they would succeed. And along the way, they picked up allies from the conservation community, and now um, uh, the states. Um, um, and um, actually, for quite a while, the states um, in a renewed way, and 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 up to and including Warren Buffett now, that the the climate um, continues to have an enormous amount of of potential for uh, for fish, and is um, one of the, the the really you know biggest opportunities on the West Coast for for having um, you know large thriving 
populations again, but everybody who's been out there knows, and the tribes more than anybody, that those salmon runs have collapsed. And that's, um, that, that, that's something, you know, for them that goes, um, you know, way beyond even uh, the fact that it, uh, you know, really goes as a, as a stake, you know, to the heart for um, subsistence and, and economic purposes. It, it really goes to, um, um, you know, the heart of, of everything that they're there for from, from time immemorial. And, and so, um, you know, their ability to be organized and to have that claim and to have kick-ass 21st century fisheries departments and to go to Scotland when the companies were, were owned by Scottish power and to go to Omaha um, when the companies became, don became owned by Berkshire Hathaway and, and make a moral case and make a scientific case. Uh, it's, it's really, um, you know, the beginning and the end of the, of the story. It's the, it's, that's the difference. And, um, you know, we're, you know, to the point now where, um, it's, it's, it's a business decision and always will be for Berkshire Hathaway, but you also have Warren Buffett, um, you know, one of the wealthiest and, and most powerful, um, businessmen in the world, um, making his statement last week. Um, uh, about the tribes, uh, recognize the importance of Klamath Dam and River Restoration for tribal people in the Klamath Basin, um, and goes on to, um, you know, talk about his appreciation for for that partnership, um, um, and 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 I think it's a recognition that they're not going anywhere, and and they were going to make this work one way or another, and and now um, with the you know, with this backstop from Berkshire Hathaway in the two states, uh, that is the case. Yeah, yeah. I I had heard some things um, during the announcement, you know, that that really struck me. Like, uh, I, I think it was the um, Karuk tribal leader had said, you know, this is just way more than a concrete project um, mm -hmm. and talked about how, you know, a free-flowing river just basically embodies who they are as as a tribe and, an, and as a tribal nation, um, which is just such a touching thing to hear. Um, and I understand that, that there's this correlation between the health of the Klamath River and the health of the people who have, you know, for centuries depended on that river. Um, so it does feel like a bigger win. I mean, it's a huge win for fish, but it kind of feels like a big win for humanity, too. Um, and it also benefits, like you said, it benefits ratepayers, it benefits local jobs, it benefits commercial and recreational fishermen and women. And it also, there's um, a tie to irrigation-dependent communities too, right? Like, doesn't this help ensure some water security for farmers as well? It will. Um, the, the situation we have now um, with the dams in the middle of the river and making, you know, putting, um, uh, you know, pressure on fish populations um, uh, and, and exacerbating water quality, it leaves the, um, it leaves the basin with, um, you know, really one other big, uh, um, you know, dial to turn, um, which is, which is, which is water. And so um, as long as, as those dams are there, the, um, you know, the, the only other thing the regulators have to do to um, try to keep um, fish on, on, on life support and 
um, and, and water, water quality, um, you know, anywhere within acceptable ranges is to dial back the irrigation and to, to, to dial up the flows. And, um, and we shouldn't kid ourselves. There, there will still be tension and, and tough decisions to resolve um, in terms of water sharing um, among the um, people in the basin when the dams are gone. But um, as long as they're there, there, there's really no chance. And, and with them with them out, um, I think we we have an opportunity to to work something out that um, is 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 acceptable to the to the folks who are there and works well for the river and the and the people who depend on water in other ways. Yeah, well, that that's kind of your your um, professional expertise is helping to get through those tough negotiations about about water. Um, was that your role? Like, what was your role? throughout this process and how long have you been working on Klamath Dam removal? So I started in about 2005, um, which is, you know, feels like a long time and it's, um, you know, it's become a career for me and I'm, I'm definitely one of the, the people now who, um, you know, will, will not rest and, and, until we get it done. But it's, you know, it makes me a newcomer there compared to the tribes and, um, and, and the conservation groups and the tribes have had a, had a good working relationship. Um, um, I think really a, a model for, for how tribes and conservation groups can work together around the West from the beginning. And um, back in, in 2006, uh, I, I was involved as, a, as an attorney um, along with other attorneys for the conservation groups and the tribes um, in, in what we call the trial type hearing. Um, to establish that, yes, in fact, there's habitat above the dams and that um, fish should be moving up there. Um, I, was, I was involved again um, um, in, a, in a less significant way during the, the negotiations around the um, original version of, of this agreement and the, and the water sharing that went with it, and then became involved um, a lot a few years later by um, 2013, 2014, um, as we as we pushed to make it forward, and um, was one of the people who helped craft the amendments in 2016, and and I was the um, the board representative for the KRC in the negotiations this summer, and so, um, but I'm just you know one of of, of many people who um, at this point are are going to see that it that it stays on track. There, there are a number of us, and that's, that's why it'll work. It, you know, these things don't happen just because they're, they're right. They happen because people won't take no for an answer, and failure isn't an option. And that concludes the Ecology Hour. Thanks for listening, and have a good night. enjoyed this podcast you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one while there you can stream us live or check out our jukebox and if you like what you hear consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner we are mendocino county public broadcasting listener supported community radio kzyx philo 90.7 fm kzyz willits and ukiah 91.5 fm and fort bragg at 88.1 fm thanks for listening